Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Welcome, everyone, and good morning. Um, so today we're going to be starting a new series here on Strength to Strength. The new series that we're going to be starting is called King and Country. So today we're going to be looking at um, a topic called King and Country, the King Foreshadowed. And then we have um, actually seven parts altogether. Uh, King and Country, the King Arrives will be part two. Part three is King and Country, the King's Constitution. Uh, Part four, King and Country, the King's Stories. Part five, King and Country, the King Inaugurated. Part six, King and Country, the New Humanity. And part seven will be King and Country, the King's Final Victory. So today we have um, the first part called um, The King Foreshadowed. And uh, for that, we're joined by uh, Chuck Pike. Chuck Pike is from the greater Boston area. His uh, work, some of you may be familiar with, um, he's published by Scroll Publishing and also by the Historic Faith Project, uh, both of which um, I believe some on this um, group are familiar with. Uh, Chuck uh, teaches apologetics from the Old Testament and um, talks about how you can win people to Jesus from the Old Testament. So we're going to get started here. Um, Just keep in mind that as we go along, uh, keep your questions. uh, You can actually submit them by chat, or if you're using Zoom, you will be able to um, join interactively at the end. So we'll give um, Brother Chuck here about 45 minutes or so, and then we'll um, go to question and answer following that. So um, Brother Chuck, if you would um, introduce yourself. And uh, then go from there. The time is yours. All right. Well, Graham, uh, you did such a great job of introducing me. I really can't add very much to that. <laughs> you did did an, uh, an awesome job. So I'm uh, uh, I'm uh, uh, I'm not seminary trained. I I'm a, I'm a civil engineer by profession. I'm at the end of my civil engineering career, ramping up my work in the kingdom of God. Um, and uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm in the Boston area, I lead, a, lead a house church here, do a lot of expository teaching, and uh, love the Old Testament, do a lot of teaching out of the Old Testament as well. So let's, uh, let's uh, begin with a prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for loving us, for creating us, for opening the door up for us to become part of your kingdom. Thank you for the wonderful king that we serve. And I pray that you will bless us all this morning as we reflect on the kingdom and the king as your plan from the very beginning. And that we see we, we see so many prophecies about the king and the kingdom of the Old Testament. I pray that you'll use it to strengthen our faith, to equip, to equip uh, us to, to, uh, to teach and persuade others and to, uh, to really fully embrace uh, what the kingdom is all about. I'm going to ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a screen now. And uh, let me go back here. All right, this is uh, King Country, the King Foreshadows. We're going to look at Old Testament prophecies about the king who was to come and, and the kingdom of God. It's a good intro to the, the series here. And uh, one thing, I think this can strengthen our faith and give us a perspective on the kingdom as, as Christians. But it's also really good for uh, convincing others. I think the fulfilled prophecies. I've seen people who were atheists and who were agnostics who come to faith by looking at materials like this from, from the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. So it's good for both. We're going to hit a lot of scriptures today. So if you, uh, more than in a typical lesson, because this we're, we're starting in Genesis and blowing through a lot of the Old Testament and, and looking at some New Testament scriptures as well. And you may want to just at least jot down the scripture references. 
if if you want to go back and check some of these things out later to see if if what I'm saying is actually true or not. Uh, when I uh, when I share my faith with other people, I uh, throw down the, the I throw the gauntlet down. I throw down the challenge. Uh, I I say if I could prove to you from the scriptures from the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus was the Son of God, would you believe and follow him? So this is uh, this is a, a much more bold way than, than most people are used to sharing their faith. But uh, but really, this is if you look in the book of Acts, that's kind of the, the approach that the apostles took, that they proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ using the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, just backing up a little bit, we had before the class started a little discussion, uh, and uh, Brian had asked if, to what extent I was influenced, what I'm teaching about the kingdom of God by David Brousseau, and, and the answer was definitely I was. It opened up my understanding to the, the idea that the message that's preached uh, really should be the kingdom of God, not more than just personal salvation. It's the kingdom of God, and salvation, of course, ties in with that. And I think of um, in the beginning, Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel is, is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew 24, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, 14, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So this is Jesus, what Jesus preached, and his expectation is that we will be preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Acts 28, it says at the end of the book of Acts, Paul dwelt for two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God. So this is what this is what Jesus expected to be preached. This is what Paul's preaching at the end of the book of Acts in Rome. And the, the preaching about the kingdom of God, we look at example of Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in Rome. And also in Acts 13, Paul in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which would be the middle of Turkey today, they both, which is, which is a, a very full and interesting presentation of the kingdom, both of them, although they use some, some of the same scriptures, some different ones, both of them come from this kingdom prophecies perspective, that Jesus is the, is the promised king who was to come. And then in Acts chapter 28, I'm going to read uh, verses 23 and 24. This is uh, out of the New King James. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some of them were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So this is what Paul was doing. He was convincing people about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and the prophets. as using the Old Testament. He's, this is what Paul did in Rome. So this is what we're going to do today. <clears throat> uh, now, I'm break, I want to break it down. A lot of the kingdom prophecies are associated with King David. So I'm going to look at prophecies that are before King David, prophecies associated with David, and then prophecies after David, in the New Testament, break it down those three those three areas, and then after that, we're going to look at how these things were fulfilled in the New Testament. That's a, basically an outline for what I want to cover today. So, question number one: <clears throat> Throw this out for you to think about. Kingdom prophecies before David. So, let's start with start with Abraham. Did the Lord make any promises to Abraham related to a future king? For a future kingdom. Now, if you think about the, pro the, the promises that God made to Abraham, he promised that he would have many descendants. He promised that his descendants would inherit the land. So those are the, those are the promises that we think about first, most of us. But there's, there's, then there's this one in, in Genesis 17, verses 15 and 16. It says, then the God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her, and I will bless him, and he shall become nations, and kings of peoples shall be from him. So there's a promise of a line of kings, a lineage of kings would come from 
the son of the son that Sarah would have, which is Isaac. So this is the the, the promise of a king would go through Abraham and Isaac, that the kings would come in the future. And uh, so we look at the prophecies. So this one says that the line of kings is going to come from Abraham through Isaac. And then there's a promise further on that's made to Jacob. And then uh, it goes from Jacob to the 12 sons of Jacob, and particularly to one of those 12 sons. So when, when uh, Jacob is about to die, in Genesis 49, he gives a blessing to each of his 12 sons. And the first three to Levi, Simeon, and Judah are more like curses than blessings, actually. They're because of the sins that the, the first the oldest three sons had committed. Uh, they don't receive the great blessing. The great blessing comes to the fourth son, Judah. In Genesis 49, a very famous prophecy that's given about Judah. And it says here, we'll pick up verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from being a shoot, my son, you've grown up. He bows down and slept as a lion and a cub. And who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from his loins until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the expectation of the nations. This is part of the, uh, the prophecy that's given to Judah, the, the, the fourth son. So it says here, part of this prophecy says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the ruler's staff. This is something that king would have. So the line of kings here is going to come through Judah. And this is Moses is giving this prophecy is in Genesis, and just, uh, you know, I mentioned to when I'm share, studying the Bible with people who are not Christians, I just I say, look, just for perspective, Moses is writing about the, the prophecy here to, to uh, that we read earlier to Abraham, and then, and then this prophecy here at the end of Genesis, Moses is writing about 1,400 years before Christ. So he says that the, the ruler's staff is going to come, is going to pass from a descendant of Judah. All right, now, so I want to uh, to move on now to prophecies that are associated with David. Now, David is, of course, descended from the tribe of Judah. He is the second king over Israel. Saul is the first king who is from the tribe of Benjamin. And David, so this is a little... Uh, uh, a little more than a thousand years before the time of Christ. So David here in Second Samuel chapter seven, he is uh, Saul has died. David has become king. It's taken him. It takes him a while. He consolidates the kingdom. He comes into Jerusalem and he surveys the situation. He's he's living in a palace of cedar himself, and he he looks out and he considers. Wow, I'm living in a palace of cedar, but the ark of God is in a tent. So what's wrong with this picture? And so he has a great idea. He thinks it's a great idea anyway. He says, I'm going to build a temple, a permanent structure. You know, the, the, the ark of the covenant was living in the tabernacle, which is a portable tent-like tent, tent structure. He says, I'm going to build a temple, a permanent structure for God, a house for God. He thinks that's a great idea. And but God doesn't think that's a great idea. So he, God, the Lord comes to Nathan, the prophet. Nathan originally thinks, yeah, that's sure that's a good idea. And the Lord comes to, to, to Nathan at night and tells him, no, I don't want David to do that. David is not the one who's going to build a house for me. And this is a very significant prophecy that uh, a lot of Christians are not very familiar with. Second Samuel chapter 7 it's, uh, it's the parallel account in First Chronicles 17. We'll start reading in verse 12. And so it says, when you're, this is the prophecy given to David by the prophet Nathan, what the Lord had told him. It says, when your days, and now pay attention to this prophecy, to every word and every phrase in here, all right? Because there's a lot, there's a lot packed in. And every, every, phrase is significant so you got to really it's easy to miss this 
when when your days are fulfilled and you rest, and the word and the Septuagint is, is sleep with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will re- prepare his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men, and his house shall be made sure, and his kingdom shall be forever. So this is a promise of the eternal kingdom, and uh, it's going to be from one of the descendants of David. It says when you die and when you rest with your fathers, it's a poetic sleep is used throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, is a metaphor for death. So uh, it says, you're not going to build my house. One of your sons is one of your descendants, one who comes from your own body. So Solomon, David thought that must must apply to Solomon, and David told that to Solomon. And in 1 Kings 5, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6, it, you read the accounts here of Solomon building the temple and then Solomon dedicating the temple. And Solomon is convinced that the, that this prophecy applies to him. When he, when he goes, when he approaches uh, the Hiram, the king of Tyre, to get the cedars of Lebanon floated down to help in the construction, the timbers for the, for the temple, he tells him, you know, uh, the Lord told my father that I was going to build the temple. And so that's why you need to help out and give me these, these uh, cedars because, because I'm, I'm the one fulfilling this prophecy that was given. And then when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, he, he calls on the Lord to fulfill the rest of the prophecy. Basically, what he says is, all right, you know, I'm the son of David, check. I built the temple, check. Now, can you please give me the kingdom that's going to last forever? So that's, that's, that's his, he's, he's, he, he's convinced that this, this applies to him. God's answer is very, very interesting and very telling the way he, he gives him a, a kind of a conditional answer to this uh, request. Uh, uh, later on, I was reading in the, the early Christians, and I stumbled on uh, a few writers, Lactantius is one in particular, who said this prophecy could not possibly have applied to Solomon. And because most people would think, oh, it must apply to Solomon. The Jews certainly thought that. They think he's the son of David. He built the temple. So, you know, he's, he must, must, this must have been a prophecy about him. And so Lacan just points out, he says, there are four reasons. It's bad enough to have one reason. He said, there are four reasons here why this could not have applied to Solomon. And let's think about the prophecy that I just read. First point is, it says, the promised descendant of David would be raised up after David's death. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, I will raise up one of your own offspring. Okay. Now, was Solomon raised to the throne after David died? No, he wasn't. In 1 Kings chapter 1, there's this whole scene where one of David's other sons, uh, seizes the throne in David's old age, and then Bathsheba and some other people uh, uh, intervene, and, and Solomon uh, is appointed king under David's authorization while David is still alive. Very unusual, but that negated the possibility because the, the promise says, after you die, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants to become king. So that's num- problem number one. Number two, so the kingdom would last forever. Did Solomon's kingdom last forever? No. Solomon reigned for 40 years, and his kingdom, anyway, you look at it, only lasted a few hundred years until the time that the Babylonians uh, destroyed uh, Judah and carried them off into captivity. So his, his kingdom did not last forever. The number three, it says that the temple would be established forever. That Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. So it only lasted for uh, 
400 years or so. And then, and then the fourth thing, which I totally missed, it says, I will be a father to him and he shall be my son. And Lactantius says, Solomon was never called the son of God. He was only known as the son of David. So four reasons why I couldn't possibly have applied to Solomon. Most people think, oh, this must be Solomon. So this is from Lactantius says, uh, lived uh, 250 to 325 uh, AD, early Christian writer from, from Rome. And you can find that in Anticene Father, Fathers, uh, volume four, page 113. Uh, if you have a hard copy set or it's available online also. Now, this whole idea about the Son of God, you know, as mentioning before we got started here that uh, I've been doing some work in the Middle East and uh, in people from Muslim countries, this whole idea of Jesus being the Son of God causes people a lot of problems. One of the first things that the, that the Muslims will teach people is God can't have a son. So they say God can't have a son because they're thinking the Son of God means God the Father has relations with Mary, a human being, and they produce an offspring, and that's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Says, that's, that's not what Christians mean. That's they're certainly not what they should be meaning when they talk about uh, Jesus being the Son of God. We mean he's the Son of God before all ages. He always was the Son of God. He was he was he was begotten before time. So he was he was he's begotten of the Father. In that sense, he's the Son of God. That's what we mean. So he means he proceeded from the Father. The Father didn't proceed from him. So that's that's what we mean. And, and and the Christians in the beginning would use illustrations when they say when we say son of God, they say, for example, as the, the sun up, up the sun that's in the sky as a ray of light proceeds from the sun that's in the sky, so the son of God proceeded from the Father. So that's that's what we mean in that sense, a son. Uh, that he is Jesus is not a created being. He always existed. His origin is in the Father. That's what we mean when we say Son of God. It's just as the Father has always existed, the Son always has existed as well before all ages. <clears throat> uh, and this idea of the Son of God, you know, said, I will be his Father and he will be my Son. So this goes back to, uh, um, to the prophecy that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. Also, the, the whole idea that the Christ would come, the, the, Christ, the word Christ means the anointed one. This, is, this comes from, from uh, a few places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where it specifically mentions the Christ. In Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people meditate on vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers to gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And, and, and the... When the New Testament writers are quoting from the Old Testament, they're generally quoting from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. New Testament is written in Greek, and there, so there. And that was the that was the Bible, of the early church, the Old Testament, you know, early Christian writers as well. Um, even Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint, from Psalm two, from this very Psalm in uh, in Revelation two, when he's quoting from uh, a little further on in, in in Psalm two. So what it says there in in uh, it says against the Lord and against his Christ. That's literally what it says. So it's, it's the Christ is the anointed one. So it talks about the Christ will come and that the rulers will oppose him. And this term Messiah is the Hebrew term. In John chapter one, it talks about the, the Messiah and Christ, those terms being equivalent. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew term. Christ is the Greek word. Christos, and then anointed one is English. They're all the same. It's the same thing in three different languages, but just it means the, the anointed one. Christ is the, the, is the title. Um, Jesus' name, Christ's title. And John 4 says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So it's the same, the same word in, in different languages. It's just the anointed one, and that's the word that shows up in Christ, the Greek, in, uh, in Psalm 2. So a little further down in Psalm 2, it says, Let us break their bands and cast away their yokes from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them. The Lord shall mock them. Then he shall speak to them his wrath and trouble them his anger. But I was established as king by him over his holy hill of Zion, declaring the Lord's decree. 
Then the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That last line there is uh, it's, uh, quoted in Hebrews chapter one as well from Psalm two. So what, what we learn from Psalm two is the Christ, the anointed one, is the son of God. So right, right back here, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So he is referred to the Christ is the son of God, who is the king ruling over God's kingdom. They're all referred to the same person. We learn that from Psalm 2. So the Muslims, ironically, they will say, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, but we don't believe he's the son of God. I say, well, <laughs> Psalm 2, so the Christians didn't make this up. This is a thousand years beforehand. It's, this comes from Psalm 2 of David. If you believe he's the Christ, he has to be the son of God by definition right here. All right. So they just, they're they confused about what we mean by son of God. So you have to explain it to them and, and, and explain this is something Christians made up. This is something written a thousand years before by David and talking about the Christ. So we learn from Psalm 2 that God will set his son on the throne as the king. And that the rulers of the earth will conspire against his son. And that Christ will rule as a king over all nations, over the ends of the earth. All right. Psalm 110 verses 1 to 4, it speaks about this son of David. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool for your feet. The Lord shall send forth the rod of your power from Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. With you is the beginning of the day of your power and the brightness of your saints. I have begotten you from the womb before the morning star. The Lord swore and will not repent, means will not change his mind. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, so let's, let's think about this. So David refers to him as my Lord. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 22. He says, uh, how can the, the Christ be the son of David, who David refers to him as my Lord? J David being the, the author of Psalm 110. So he's both the son of David and the Lord or ruler of David. And also notice that in this passage, the two are referred to as Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord being the Father and my Lord being the Son. Well, referring to him. He will sit at the right hand of God. <clears throat> and which is, it mentions that in Hebrews 1 also <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2. Is Jesus now seated at the right hand of the Father. And all his enemies would made his footstool. Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be made his footstool will be death itself. And then a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned. Melchizedek, you, you blink and you miss him. He, he's, he's, he shows up in Genesis 14, and he's mentioned in three verses of Scripture, and somehow he gets three chapters in the book of Hebrews devoted to him. So why is that? Well, because the significance of Melchizedek is because it says that uh, the, 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 the Lord, this Lord that David is referring to, this great king, will also be a priest, but he'll be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not like Levi. And so that's why uh, it's that's why this this I, Melchizedek, the connection with Melchizedek is picked up and expanded on in Hebrews over the course of three chapters because of this statement in Psalm 110. <clears throat> so he, he's like as it explains in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. He's, he would be like Melchizedek in the following senses. He'd be both the king and priest. So the kings were all this, descended from Judah. The, the, they were supposed to be, anyway. The, the, uh, and, 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 but the priests were all descended from Levi. So all of a sudden you have a, you know, how could you someone both be a king and a priest because they're descended from two different lines? Well, this king, future king, would also be a priest like Melchizedek was. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He was the king of peace. He was the king of righteousness by his names. 
And he was a member of a more ancient priesthood than the one of Aaron. And it was a priesthood that was not based on genealogy. And that he was such a great priest. He was a priest even to Abraham. And it says he's a, he's a, he's a member of an eternal priesthood. And he offered the bread and the wine. So this is the this is similarities with Melchizedek. So this king would also be a priest like Melchizedek. Um, so this promise that's made to David about the eternal kingdom is repeated in Psalm 89 and Psalm 132, where God doubles and triples down on this promise that he made. So he made the promise to David that, that one of his descendants would be on the throne over the kingdom that would last forever. And he goes on to say in Psalm 89, uh, at great length, he says, once, once for all, I swore in my holy place, I would not lie to David. His seed shall remain forever, his throne as the sun before me. So this is after the time of David that, the, that God is revealing. He says, I swore in my holy place, I will not lie to David. I will fulfill this promise no matter what it looks like. And uh, Psalm 132 says the same thing. Uh, the Lord swore to David this truth. He shall not reject it. I shall set upon your throne one from the fruit of your loins. Uh, so we looked at prophecies associated with David. Now I want to look at prophecies that come after the time of David. It's a famous prophecy. Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this is a very famous I think this is uh, from Handel's Messiah. Uh, uh, this this part of scripture, and it says he will be upon the throne of David and over his kingdoms. This is Isaiah is writing about 700 BC, and this is obviously referring to the same promise that had been given to David hundreds of years earlier that this king over eternal kingdom would would uh, be on the throne of David. Micah 5, 2, another uh, well-known prophecy. It's repeated in the New Testament. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this is the promise that the ruler... <clears throat> The great ruler to come would come from Bethlehem, which was the city of David. So Micah's writing uh, long after David has died. And uh, this mysterious statement, his goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This, this points back to the fact that, that the Son of God was from everlasting, that he, had, he was from before all ages. That uh, he wasn't that that the just the, the birth of Jesus is just the incarnation that the Son of God always existed. Uh, another kingdom prophecy, Ezekiel writing about six hundred years before Christ. Ezekiel thirty four is a wonderful passage in Ezekiel thirty four about God is being upset with the wicked shepherds of Israel, and after rebuking them, God says, "God gives oh, it's a wonderful promise." At the end of, of Ezekiel 34, he says in verse 23, I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. So God says, I will raise up one shepherd over them, even my servant David now. David's been dead for 400 years now, but he's referring to this shepherd that he will establish as the prince 
over them to be the shepherd. So this is this is uh, referring to this, the same promise of David. He's referring to him as David. In Daniel chapter two, there are a number of king prophecies in Daniel, which is so this would be this would appear to be a low point for the Jews in that their their kingdom has been uh, smashed. Their, the Jews are taken into captivity. The temple's been the temple of Solomon has been destroyed. <laughs> However, even in the midst of this discouraging situation, God affirms that he rules and that he will establish his kingdom just as he said he would. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, the the king has a dream which he bothers him greatly, and uh, so he tells the wise men, you tell me my dream, and then you give the interpretation, and then I'll know that you're for real. You're not just making something up. And Daniel, well, the Spirit of God reveals to Daniel the dream, and he interprets the dream. This is the dream of the four-part statue, the, the head of gold and the the chest and the arms of silver and the, 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 the belly and thighs of bronze and then the, the feet of iron and bay clay, the four-part statue. And so he goes through the four, that the king of Babylon is the head of gold. After him will come another kingdom and then another one. And then in the times of the fourth kingdom, he says, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is a kingdom prophecy that God will establish the kingdom that will last forever in the time of the fourth kingdom. And, I mean, historically, uh, the, the, the kingdoms in that part of the world would be uh, Babylon first, and then in the book of Daniel, that's succeeded by the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians second. And then after that came Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then the fourth kingdom would be the Roman Empire uh, to rule over Israel. Daniel chapter 7, interesting prophecy in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. So this is the, this is the, 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 the vision about the Son of Man who would be over the kingdom that would, would not be destroyed, ruling over all nations. And Daniel 9 is the 70 weeks prophecy, which uh, I'm not going to go into the details of it. We're going to look at this at a very, very high level, just in terms of the, the establishing the overall time frame. Daniel 9, 24 to 26 is famous 70 weeks prophecy. So it's uh, the word for seven and week is the same thing. So uh, 70 weeks or 77s says 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end for sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, this is the, you know, in the Septuagint, it's Christ the Prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the streets shall be built again, the wall, even in troublesome times. But after And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So, right. <clears throat> So it's talking about Messiah the Prince, about Christ's coming, and it says when he's going to come. So keep in mind, this is a this is a message that's given to Daniel while Daniel is in uh, in in captivity, and he says, "All right, here's the timeline that um, the J Jerusalem will be rebuilt, including the temple." And then the Messiah will come, and then the Messiah will be cut off 
uh, and then the city, Jerusalem, will be destroyed. Right, so that's, that's the, the, the sequence here. So Jerusalem, at the, that time was destroyed, will be rebuilt, and which is happens during the time of, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then Messiah will come and he'll be cut off. And it's the same expression, Isaiah 53, he was cut off from the land of the living. That's the way he's saying he's going to be killed. Uh, and the Septuagint says after 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be put to death. So that's what it's referring to. So he, 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 the city would be rebuilt, then Messiah would come, then he'd be cut off, and then after that, the city of Jerusalem was to be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. So that tells us, all right, 70 AD, this is, this is uh, in Rome, this is the famous Arch of Titus, which is the victory procession coming back into Rome after Rome had been destroyed by the general Titus and they're bringing some of the articles from the temple and the victory procession back into Rome. And the arch commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which is horrific. And um, so this is the Judea Capta uh, coin on the left here, which was issued in to commemorate this great victory by the Romans. And the, when the, the city was destroyed, and the temple was, was, was obliterated. So, um, and actually, the destruction of Jerusalem was, was something that Jesus prophesied as well. In Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So... <clears throat> So Daniel 9 says Messiah be cut off after Jerusalem was rebuilt and before it was destroyed. So based on that, without getting into the details of the 62 weeks and, and, and the seven weeks and so forth, without getting into details, just from a high level, the Messiah had to come and be killed sometime between 444 B.C., and 70 AD. It's going to happen before, according to Daniel, it was going to happen before the city was destroyed, which happened in AD 70. So uh, anyone who's still waiting for the Messiah to come, you missed it by a couple of thousand years because he had to come and had to be killed by AD 70, according to the Jewish prophet Daniel. All right. Now, now I want to, to, to uh, move into the New Testament to pull all of this together. The, the, the different prophecies that we've looked at before David, associated with David, and after David. And why is it that the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham? Well, it's the first thing you learn in the New Testament about Jesus is he's descended from David. Why is that important? Because the king had to be descended from David to fulfill the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Matthew 2, in the account about the wise men, starting verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then in Luke chapter 1, this, this, this statement by Gabriel to Mary takes on much greater significance, understanding the prophecies and the promise that was made to David. So think about this now. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. <clears throat> but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, <clears throat> and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Then the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. John chapter 2, after Jesus clears the temple, in verse 13, so, so the Jews says so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He would raise up the temple of God. Of course, this is referring to his body, explains explains there, which the disciples didn't understand at the time, but he was the one who would he would he would rebuild the temple. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost the message of the kingdom of God. And the points that he makes there in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 36, he makes makes the following points. He says, David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he raised up the Christ to sit on the throne. Now, we know know what that's talking about now because we've covered those those, things. prophecies. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. And the word raise up here is uh, is actually, if you're if you read in the Septuagint, that's what it says. Literally, it says the Lord will, God's promise to David, I will raise up one of your descendants. And Peter says, look, he just did raise him up. Literally, he you're thinking figuratively he's going to raise up a king. He says, no, he just raised up one of the descendants of David. Literally. <clears throat> uh, the word, the Greek word is anistomy, uh, but it's the same word found in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. <clears throat> so he was, he was, Peter saying, he literally raised him up. <clears throat> And Peter continues, he said, he's exalted at the right hand of God. He says, for David says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till you make your enemies your footstool. Of course, that's Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, just, uh, just pulling it all together here. This is the, the all these prophecies have been fulfilled. These are prophecies that are made 1,400, 1,000, 700, 600, 550 years before Jesus was born. And the prophecies that we covered include, he is the promised king descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and then further descended from the body of David. He was raised up to the throne after David died, unlike Solomon. He would reign over an eternal kingdom, which would never end. He would raise the temple, his body, one that would endure forever. He would be called the son of God, just as was was, was said to David to be known as the son of God in, in, uh, in Psalm 2 and, and 2 Samuel 7. He would be opposed by the rulers of this world who would conspire against him, as it said in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in uh, Psalm 2. He is the promised king, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is both the son of David and the Lord of David. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. All his enemies are destined to be under his feet. He was a king, he was a king who was like Melchizedek in that he was both a king and a priest. He's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. He's over an eternal priesthood that's greater than that of Levi. He was the ruler who was born in Bethlehem and whose origins are from eternity. He is the one good shepherd over all of God's flock in fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. He'd be cut off, killed after Jerusalem was built, but before it was again destroyed in AD 70. He would be raised up literally by God from death and the Gentiles would seek him. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the, the great 
sweep of prophecies about the kingdom of God. It didn't hit all of them, but we, we hit many to give you a sense. I hope this encourages your, strengthens your faith and, and gets you excited about uh, learning more about the kingdom. So at this point, we can open up for questions and discussion. Hey, thank you, Brother Chuck, for sharing. That was uh, very um, stimulating and, and fascinating. So uh, that's, that's amazing to see that starting there with the promise to Abraham and following through from there. So just a question here to get started. And for the audience, uh, we welcome your questions. Um, you have an opportunity here to uh, simply unmute yourself if you're using Zoom and, um, and pose your question. So just uh, to get started here, um, so as Jesus is called the son of David, um, any thoughts on why it was David and not some other king in the succession? Because he had um, like shown the whole series of kingly line leading up to Jesus. And David was not the first king nor the last. Um, why was it David? <clears throat> um, well, David was a man after God's own heart. So that was uh, David. David was uh, that's that's uh, uh, one of the reasons um, why God chose David. That's that's the first thing that I think of is uh, he was a man after God's own heart. And I think of the story of David and Goliath, that he was he was he was willing to take on the great enemy of God's people and go one on one, which is what Jesus did with Satan, to uh, to to defeat him. And uh, uh, he was a good shepherd. So he was, he was the many things in the life of David that that point to Christ. A lot of symbolism with David that we wouldn't have with any other king. That's right. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. All right, um, so. From the audience, uh, what questions might you have for um, Brother Chuck? You can simply unmute yourself and go ahead. Who, who will be first? Uh, Chuck, I'm John D. Martin. I don't think we've ever met. Uh, but I'm curious, when in church history this gospel, the kingdom, was lost? How was it lost? John, we sing from your songbook every Sunday in our house church here. So we, we all know you up here. So you're, you're very, well, they're very well known in the Purple Martins here. So uh, I have, uh, I've, I've heard you speak before. So we, I don't know if we've ever been introduced personally, but uh, we're, we're, we have, you have many, many, many appreciative uh, people up here in Boston for the work you've done. Um, when was it lost? Boy, that's a good question. Um, or was it was it was was any of this ever totally lost? I don't know. I, I just don't know. I think uh, you know. Were, were there always at least a few people who 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 hung on to this? Uh, this is this is this is a, a, a that's that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, I've been just trying to put the pieces back together again. And learning from the early Christians and going back and looking at the book of Acts much more carefully, uh, it's always been there. It's always been there. So uh, I think and, and different people at different times have have rediscovered it and gotten excited about it. But I, I don't that's a wonderful question. I don't know the answer. I feel like it's always it's always been there just below the surface. Any so other? I found your, I yeah. found your uh, discussion of David there. That's interesting. And with the David's kingdom, that that line there, like I've always understood that to go through David, um, you know, and it's going to go through Solomon. And his earthly kingdom was foreshadowing of Christ's kingdom, or Christ is an extension of that. You get down to the end of the kingdom, though. I believe it's Jeconiah who when he when the kingdom came in when babylon came in they they because he did not obey his line was cut off it says there um and it's now i don't know if you have any perspective on that or not the jews actually find that problematic too because it cuts off david's line um in his earthly kingdom and so the messiah has to fit there 
And so some thought is that maybe it comes the Jesus lineage comes through Nathan. Um, I just have you have you have any thoughts on that? I'm not stuck on it. Well, yeah, I mean the the uh, the the lineage that's given in uh, in Matthew and in Luke in Matthew I think it's Matthew one Luke three. Um, there. Uh, early Christians understood them both as being the lineage of Joseph, one a legal and one a physical lineage, but those are both considered to be the lines. They, that's how they, and, and that, I think reading it literally, that's, that's what it sounds like, but that's, they understood those both as the, as the lineage of Joseph, so that they would say that Joseph was, you know, was the legal father of, of, of David, uh, Mary also was descended from from David because uh, Eusebius actually in uh, there's there's a work an ancient work called Gospel Problems and Solutions. So there's people people were asking this question in the 300s of Eusebius about you know what what what's the story with Jesus and the two the two genealogies and everything else. He and he he gave an explanation of it. He said. Uh, he said they're both the the genealogy of Joseph, but but Jesus had to be descended from Mary too. If you think about what the angel said to Mary in in Luke one, he said uh, that uh, that this child to come from her would be the son would be descended from David. So she had to be in the line of David herself, or that would make no sense whatsoever. So um, indeed. Both Mary and Joseph were in the line of David, and that's the point in Matthew chapter 1, is that Jesus is descended from the line of kings that goes through David and Solomon. Um, that uh, he, he is, you know, he, he, he can be, he can be, he can claim, he can lay claim to the, the promise that was given to David because he is descended from the line of kings from David. This is John Martin again. Uh, the, the Muslims and the Jews both make a big issue that Jesus could not have been the son of David because he was not the physical son of Joseph. It had to be a paternal uh, line of descent. How do you answer that question? <clears throat> okay. Uh, good. Well, that's a tough one there. They, uh, <clears throat> um Actually, there's there's a there's a strange it's e it's either in um, uh, it, the the early Christians relied on the Septuagint pretty heavily, and the quotes from Jesus and the apostles where the Septuagint and Masoretic texts differ, they generally follow the Septuagint. Um, and there's a there's a line in the Septuagint. It's uh, it talks about I'm trying to think if it's it's it whether it's Psalm 132 or 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17. One of the lines there, it says that he will descend that 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 one it's one who it's a promise made to David, one who comes from your belly. Okay, and one of the one of the early Christian writers it makes the point, he says, you know, you wouldn't say that about a guy. Okay. That he comes from your belly. He said anatomically, that's incorrect for a male. Okay, one who would descend from your belly. That just doesn't make sense. You'd say that of a woman. And so, the point that they made was is that this prophecy that was given to to David was that one who would come from your belly. It had to refer to a woman. So that's the point. That's the point the early Christians made is that even in that statement, uh, it, it comes from that. And then the the uh, also from the the promise that was given to Eve in in Genesis three is that one who would come from uh, from her would defeat uh, Satan and his offspring. So that was the, the the promise of Genesis three to the woman that it would be from her. So you know they would counter that actually the Old Testament points to the fact that this had to be a woman descended from David, which is exactly what the angel says 
in Luke chapter one, what Gabriel says. So that, I think that's how they would answer that question. Brother Chuck, I just want to say this was a wonderful message. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It's a, a pleasure, pleasure to, uh, to, uh, to, to connect with you. Any other questions? Asking some really good ones. Just uh, one more question that I would uh, pose here. So you had read from Daniel chapter two um, in this uh, vision, um, the, the words were, and in the, and in the day of these Kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. What do you make of this uh, language about uh, the kingdom, um, consuming other kingdoms, uh, breaking them in pieces. Uh, some would say that that uh, means that the, the earth is going to, uh, at some point in the future, be um, overwhelmed by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to overtake all other nations uh, before the return of the Lord. Any um, thoughts on that? Um. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a that's a, a very deep and significant question, um, and I'm not sure about that. Um, <clears throat> teaching, doing expository teaching recently through Second Peter, and stumbled onto some things I didn't expect. Where Peter talks about how the heavens and the earth will be. Uh, consumed by fire and be replaced with the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And he says, this is what we're looking forward to. So that wasn't really how I was thinking things were going to play out. <laughs> That's what he says. And that actually is quite consistent with what it says elsewhere in scripture too. Wasn't what I was, it wasn't how it was explained to me, but that's what he said. So, uh, <clears throat> so I would say that uh, uh, we know Jesus is coming back. And um, that uh, it's not that we're all going to be teleported up to heaven. It says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So uh, that's what it says. <laughs> so, uh, so how that's all going to happen, uh, I don't know exactly. But but the kingdoms of this world will be smashed. And uh, it says that we will... We will reign with Christ. Those who in Second Timothy it says we will reign with Christ, and uh, Jesus says the same thing in the Book of Revelation. Uh, so, uh, in Revelation two and three. So, uh, exactly how all the pieces fit together, I'm not sure. But those are things that the Scripture lays out for us that there's more to come with the kingdom of God for all of these things to be fulfilled. Okay, exciting times that we live in and exciting times ahead. <laughs> Amen. All right, anyone else have any um, further questions before we conclude? All right, so I think what we'll do is uh, wrap this up. Um, I think what we'll do is have uh, Brother Chuck lead us in a closing prayer and then we'll have a few announcements to follow. So go ahead. That's right. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, thank you for giving us your word that's a light shining in a dark place. Uh, Father, thank you that we can uh, reflect on mysteries that angels wanted to look into and uh, about, about your son Jesus, about your kingdom that we can see these things that were hidden and woven into the scriptures by the Holy Spirit to build our faith, to teach us, <clears throat> to teach us about your son Jesus and to, to give us a rock solid foundation spiritually that, uh, uh, that uh, we, we can be confident that these things are true. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will bless us as we continue to study the kingdom. Uh, teach us, deepen our faith, deepen our understanding, equip us to effectively persuade others and to 
live lives that are pleasing to Jesus, that we can fully participate in his kingdom. And I pray that you bless uh, all the brothers who have been on this call. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we want to thank you, Chuck, for uh, joining us here this morning. It's been um, a blessing, I'm sure, to all of us. And you're welcome here anytime. So uh, next week, uh, we're going to be uh, looking to um, a brother from uh, Africa who's going to be sharing his testimony with us, um, Adamanti Siraji. So uh, that's the plan for next uh, week. And uh, following that, we'll be having um, a talk on the atonement uh, by Philip Hess. And then following that, we'll be uh, coming to part two of King and Country. So again, thank you all for uh, being a part of this. And uh, we'll see you next week. But God bless your week. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.